Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hang up and listen. Olympic Extra is brought to you by Rocket Mortgage from Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage process into the 21st century with an easy online process. Check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com slash hangup. Hi, this is Mike Pesca. I'm host of The Gist beloved Slate podcast. And right here, right now, I am also hosting Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, the Olympics Extra. It's August 16th, 2016. Yesterday in Rio, Shawnee Miller of the Bahamas hurled herself across the finish line, thrust herself across the finish line, left her feet to cross the finish line in just under 49 and a half seconds. That was smart and legal. Because Allison Felix of the United States crossed that finish line on her feet in 49.51 seconds. So what are the physics of the leap? We've always been told in baseball that you shouldn't dive into first base. You slow down when you leave your feet. That's true, except from everything I've been reading. That very, very first moment when you thrust yourself with your foot, you can get an extra, well, in Shawnee Miller's case, 0.07 seconds. Legal? and gold medal worthy. Sadly, the United States women's field hockey team lost, and that was in the elimination round. Therefore, they were eliminated. Germany beats the upstart United States women 2-1. Carly Lloyd's mom had her bag exploded. She's staying on a boat next to the basketball player's boat. She hustled to see her daughter. She came back, and kaboom went the bag. This happens a lot in Rio with unattended packages. Now you're saying how sad for Carly Lloyd, the star of the U.S. women's soccer team. They were eliminated. No, 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 no. 
not that Carly Lloyd, not that Olympian Carly Lloyd, a different Carly Lloyd. This Carly Lloyd's a volleyball player, and she is the niece of Turbo. Turbo, you say? The beloved but little noticed movie about the racing slugs? No, not that Turbo. The American Gladiator Turbo. Remember that show from the 80s? When guys and girls in spandex did battle with American gladiators with giant Q-tips, Turbo, Lace, Gemini, and Zap. So I was thinking, Carly Lloyd. How common is the name Carly? Do you know the two Carly Lloyds are the only Carlys on the U.S. Olympic team, though there is an Italian runner also named Carly. Carly Lloyd, the volleyball player, was born in 1989 Carly Lloyd, the soccer player, was born in 1982. And the name Carly, the girl's name Carly, was just not popular then. They weren't exactly riding a Carly crest. Now, there are about six different spellings of Carly with an I, with two E's, with G-H's. But none of them ranked over a thousand in the years that either of the Carlys were named Carly. So now I will give you a U.S. Olympics team trivia question. And I will answer it at the end of the show. What is the most common first name of U.S. Olympians? If you think about it, you could probably get it. Do the demographics. Do the gender-specific demographics. Yesterday in Rio, Anita Vladczyk, the Polish hammer thrower, did just that. But now, let's just listen to that throw without the announcers yapping. You can tell she won the gold just based on the sound that she made. The throw was 82 meters. That was about six meters more than a competitor. Uh, The NBC announcer, even though he had an English accent, helpfully spelled out that that's 269 feet, 11 inches. That's a long way to throw a hammer. The hammer is not really a hammer. It's a ball and chain. And the great thing about the hammer is, unlike other throwing events, it does take a lot of aim. There's that narrow slit in the thankfully protective cage And you really want to throw it right down the middle because otherwise you lose distance because distance is measured right from the middle. And I like these moments in track and field when it's both track and field are going on. So this morning I was watching the women's 5,000 heats while at the same time triple jumpers and pole vaulters were doing just that in the middle of the field. That is a cool time in Olympics track and field. So let's go from hammer time. To Ice Ice Baby, Stefan Peters on his horse Legolas. Maybe you saw or heard or was shared some tape of uh, Carlos Santana's Smooth by the Spanish rider. Will an American dance to Ice Ice Baby? Really lovely reach in that half pass. You see how the music changes as he transitions from trot half pass to passage half pass. Nice. Yo, man, let's get out of here. But I was thinking, wait. What makes that Ice Ice Baby and not Under Pressure, the Queen song featuring David Bowie that Vanilla Ice ripped off? Vanilla Ice always claimed there was an extra beat in his ripoff version. I don't know if musicologists can confirm that. So they don't just play the song from a cassette or even a single. They write a new composition. And this was the idea of Stefan Peters was to incorporate some what became Ice Ice Baby. He says that he first thought of Under Pressure by Queen... And it was, of course, renamed Ice Ice Baby. And 
Then Mickey, the eight-year-old daughter of the owners of his horses, helped play a little piano, and we got an Ice Ice Baby kind of mashup, which uh, helped Stefan Peters achieve 12th place in the individual dressage. Yo, man, let's get out of here. Word to your mother. Today in Rio, Christian Taylor won the men's triple jump. He was defending his gold medal from London. And what is so amazing about American triple jumper Christian Taylor is that he switched the leg he jumps off of. He was a right-legged jumper. He could achieve greater distance with the right, but his knee was breaking down. He thought he might have to quit. And then he remembered, wait a minute, I have another knee available. He switched to the left and has won gold while jumping off his left leg. Now, this, I think, can be applied to other sports. Let's say Katie Ledecky starts to age out, I don't know, four, eight, 12 years from now, and she thinks she's given it her all. Well, maybe she could remember Christian Taylor changing knees, and she could change sides and become the greatest backstroker of all time. I know she's using her back a little. Taylor was using his other leg a little bit. But think of all the Olympians who just have to change directions or change knees. Or in the case of the badminton players, instead of wielding a racket to hit the birdie, start off with birdies and try to hit the racket. I don't know. I'm just saying Christian Taylor opens this all up to a great amount of change and creativity. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage approval process into the 21st century. It's this century. It's fast. It's powerful. It's completely online. Rocket Mortgage has taken all the complicated, time-consuming parts of applying for a mortgage out of the equation. Time-consuming parts like searching through stacks of old files and paperwork. With Rocket Mortgage, you can easily share your bank statements and pay stubs at the touch of a button a button that's on your computer or possibly even your iPad or your phone or your tablet. You get approved for minutes for a custom mortgage solution that's tailored to your unique financial situation. If you're looking to refinance your mortgage or to buy a home, check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com slash hangup, equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. Today was the last day for gymnastics in the Olympics. Oleg Verniev took gold in men's parallel bars. An American took silver in men's horizontal bars, Danelle Leva. But it was, of course, the women who we expected to win. And Simone Biles did gold, a silver for Ali Raisman. I say we knew that Simone Biles was going to win because I looked up the odds on Patty Power beforehand. To win a dollar, you had to bet 33 on Simone to win. Luckily, I bet my $33,000, and now I sit before you $1,000 richer. Joining me now for a different perspective on gymnastics, perhaps a literary one, is Megan Abbott. Megan Abbott is a crime novelist. She is not here to tell us if it's a crime that Gabby Douglas couldn't compete in the individual all around. She's here because her latest book, You Will Know Me, is set against the backdrop of gymnastics, elite or at least yearning to be elite gymnastics. Hello, Megan. Hi, glad to be here. 
So to write this book, did you read a bunch of memoirs? I did. I did. I, I probably read a dozen of them. And uh, and there's sort of the expose model, you know, which talks about eating disorders and sort of deformed bodies and pressure and terrible coaches. And then there's the other version, which is, no, this made me stronger. This is what I wanted. This is my dream. So the ones who, of the latter, they might have been good source material for some sort of, uh, literally, uh, there's either a self-deception there or a budding against what is the reality as portrayed in books like Little Girls and Pretty Boxes, the Joan Ryan book, where, I mean, it's so clear that they're going through a horrible physical ordeal, and yet to get positives out of that is pretty interesting from your perspective, I would say. It is, because you just wonder what goes into that, what the cost of that is to feel that and what you have to give up. Um, And I think particularly with gymnasts, just thinking of this with this sort of outcry about Gabby Douglas and how she should look and the smile that she should wear and how she should move. You know, there's something about we put all this pressure on them, they're supposed to perform so much, and then if they don't succeed... We're supposed to be surprised if they don't necessarily look happy about it. You know, there's just so much about this sort of mask they're supposed to wear. But if they're able to wear it, that becomes all the more powerful. Well, that's the thing. I think that there's a feminist argument of why do we have to make them wear spangles Mm -hmm. and smile when they land the vault and wear makeup? And why do they have to perform this femininity? And yet, on the other hand, knowing that they do and knowing that they either want to or bought into it, does even heighten how interesting it is. Exactly. I thought of that when I read Nadia Comaneci's memoir, which is fascinating because people were always so, found her so enigmatic and her face sort of so Romanian and mysterious. And, yeah. uh, and for her, she was not going to let anyone in. And she writes about that in a lot in the book, that that was her place and you, would, you will not understand it. And that's where I got the title of the book from, you know. Uh, she had this kind of steely resistance to it. And that was her version of the mask, that, that it would just be impassive and determined. And I don't know if that would work today, though, honestly. So for what you're going for, which is to show a little bit of the underbelly, and it's there if anyone's paying attention, is it a service to you that the way NBC shows this is really hagiographic and really gauzy and really buying into a fiction? Is it good that you're able to exploit that? Or do you look at it and say, come on, guys, you really need to be uh, telling the world a little more about the truth about gymnastics? I just had hard to imagine NBC ever doing that. <laughs> you know, they're so invested. And we, I suppose, as a country, are still so largely invested in this sort of, not just the athlete as this perfect thing, um, but especially the girl athlete as this all-American girl. I just can't imagine a world in which NBC would want to go deeper on that. They have, they have no investment to do so. Um, and especially now we're online. Everyone else can, <laughs> you know, and is sort of doing that job for better or for worse. I think in some ways, maybe it creates a safer space for those gymnasts. I mean, they need to be in the place at that stage where they kind of got to believe their own the story that they put out. They kind of have to to get through it. And um, I think that's why those stories persist of the, you know, the athlete triumphing over the set of adversities and everyone's given their adversity and how, you know, and sort of these stories, you know, whether they're adopted or their, their mother was bankrupt or all these sort of things. That's a story we have a lot invested in. So when you look at these medalists, when you look at the American greats, and these are the ones who've made it, do you see that or do you kind of see that invisible pyramid of the gnarled and the twisted 15-year-olds that they're standing on top of? (laughs) 
I mean, I guess you can, it's hard not to ever always see both once you sort of dig in. And I, I think it's really been interesting with Michaela Maroney, who was one of the big gymnasts last time and became famous for that meme, you know, Michaela is not impressed. And she's been doing a lot of interviews lately talking about how hard it was for her after. And no one really wants to hear it, you know. But she understands. I mean, it's been interesting to hear her talk because she understands that that experience was incredible for her, but it did give her you know, eating disorder and it did terrible damage to her body and her self-esteem, and she's still working through it. But she, she doesn't want that experience to go away either. And I think that that ambiguity and that ambivalence is probably central to something deeply American. Right, and I think it's so much different from other sports. Like if you talk to... Uh baseball players or many other team sports or even tough individual sports, right? People say, I got a lot out of it or I worked really hard. But with gymnasts, there's always a huge but. And uh, well, sometimes it is a pretty actually huge but. (laughs) But sometimes it's, well, here's my litany of injuries or here's my body dysmorphia issue or here's the psychological abuse I uh, experienced at the hands of a coach. That is not the exception from what I've experienced in gymnastics. How about you? This is obviously not natural what these gymnasts are doing. You know, there's nothing natural about what it does to sort of, you know, girls postponing puberty and, uh, you know, and being taken out of school and, you know, I mean, high school is hard for sure, but being taken out of high school is hard too. Um, and, you know, feeling separate and apart from, from everyone, uh, you know, through your whole childhood and adolescence. But on the other hand, you know, it's hard not to see Simone Biles perform and do what she does and see the joy in her face. And it's hard not to believe that there's a piece of it that is quite gratifying and real. Yeah. So Simone came in third, won the bronze on the beam. She stumbled and fell a little, and they asked her about her quest for uh, five gold medals. Never happened before. And she answered when they said, were you disappointed? Not necessarily. It's something you guys, meaning you guys in the media, shove into my head. But I don't put that much stress on myself because I'm only 19, and I think you guys want it more than I do. I just want to perform the routines that I practiced. Do you believe her? Yeah, I heard that first thing this morning. I woke up to hearing that. I I thought it was so interesting, and I think she's both telling the truth and she's not. You know, first of all, I don't know how she's probably sort of in, still in in the flush of it all, but I think she's right. They every we all did kind of put it there and did put the pressure on, but I think it's pretty hard to believe that you don't subsume that in some way when everyone's saying you're the greatest gymnast who ever was. You know, I think that you know you live in a constant state of pressure, so in some ways there's part of it that might feel like a relief, but I think. There's there's something else there. Anyone who can drive themselves this far, there's something in them that inevitably is always going to be disappointed, even if she had done all these things. I feel like it's kind of built into it. Yeah. So think about gymnastics and who's disappointed. Well, we just put forth the idea that maybe Simone Biles is disappointed. Then you have Ali Raceman, possibly the second best gymnast in the world, who does not have a chance to be the best gymnast in the world. She won gold on floor. She's probably not going to win gold on floor this year. Then you have Gabby, who's the third best gymnast in the world and is not even allowed to compete in the individual all around. Then you have Laurie Hernandez, who people were saying, oh, she could has a shot at silver and individual all around. She didn't make it. Then you have everyone else in the world who didn't win gold in team, didn't win gold. There is no non-disappointed gymnast. <laughs> Exactly. It doesn't create for that possibility. So, you know, everyone is going out of there miserable. And in 
some way. It's sort of part of the fantasy that they're a team and they all love each other, which I'm sure they do, but they also are competing against each other and in some way have aggression towards each other. But, but I, that's very hard to account for or deal with, you know. I was talking online with someone about that, and they called it the hate hug, you know, where <laughs> gymnasts, after they come off their routine and they hug their fellow gymnasts, but it's a very aggressive hug. It's almost like soldiers or, you know, some kind of combat Marines, you know. So that those all those conflicting feelings, they got to be there. And I, and I think that's part of the fascination for us, even if we're, we're not acknowledging it. And as a literary figure, does Allie Raisman appeal to you? Because uh, but for Simone Biles, she would be the greatest. Yes, because in fact, she was the original inspiration for my book. Her parents fascinate me. They're such, such you know, ultimate cheer, cheer, gymnast parents. And, they're, you know, she has this, this, so much solid support behind her. Um, and it's sort of always the bridesmaid for Allie. But she's the one who was, who, you know, who came back and she moved farther than, than Gabby. And, you know, the way we kind of keep lining them up again, against each other, though, sort of proves the point, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Do you think that there are any reforms that the sport should take? Wouldn't serve your purposes. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly going to be different when Bella and Marta are are gone forever, which being a Bella's gone now. I mean, I think the rigors of some of the coaching that occurred in the 80s and 90s is probably gone. But on the other hand, I think the valuing of risk taking um, and the judging, I think that's you know that's only increasing, and I don't it doesn't, doesn't show any signs of going away. And when someone can see what Simone Biles does, it only increases the stakes. So it's hard for me to imagine. Imagine them kind of justifying any kind of uh, uh, reform when everyone's doing so great. Yeah. Do you think that uh, now that the book is over, now that the Olympics are passing, are you still going to be as interested in gymnastics? I think probably in some ways more so because the book was sort of in my head. And now, you know, having the experience, I think, come out during the Olympics and sort of seeing the responses to it and, the you know, the sort of world's reaction to it in a different light. And now, of course, inevitably, when you write a book, it's something meeting former gymnasts and families of gymnasts and want to be gymnasts. I think it's intensified everything for me. I certainly won't watch it the same way again. You know, it's hard to see it on a micro level anymore um, and just individual stories as it could be in a book. Now it's now it's pretty large. And I have a gimlet eye, but I still have a, I still have a hunger for You Will Know Me is the new novel by Megan Abbott. Megan, thank you so much. Thank you so much. In the men's 800, David Rudisha of Kenya defended his title. He won gold again. He beat his countryman, Alfred Kipketer, in what was a highly entertaining tactical race. How tactical? I don't know. To me, it looked like two guys were running around the track twice. Actually, a bunch of guys were, but those were the two most compelling ones. David Epstein, however, saw the whole thing differently. He has a trained eye. He is the author of The Sports Gene. He is a writer for ProPublica, and he's here to break down the 800 using such terms as negative splits. Compelling. Go, David. And on their way in the 800-meter final as David Rhodesia tries to win back-to-back Olympic gold medals. Kenyan athlete David Rudisha became the first man in more than a half century to win the 800 meters at back-to-back Olympics. That's pretty astounding, because the 800 is not only a rather painful event, I actually ran it in college, but it's a notoriously difficult one to pace well, and so even the best runners don't consistently win all the biggest meets. The race is really a mix of endurance and sprinting in a way that no other event is. 
And that means it requires a mix of aerobic energy production and anaerobic energy production. That basically means that it's using both of your body's energy producing systems, the ones that don't really require a lot of oxygen, like you use for sprinting, and the ones that do require a lot of oxygen, like you use for distance running. And so the trick is to pace the first of two laps just right. Go out too fast, too close to your maximum sprinting, and your muscles lose the ability to generate force, and you'll basically come home sort of limping or going really slow. But go out too slow, and you're just going to get too far behind and not run a fast race. In fact, the 800 meters is the longest race in which competitors running the fastest times don't do what's called negative splitting. A negative split means that you run the second half of a race faster than the first half. And that's the norm in events longer than the 800 meters. And it's the exact opposite. In the 100, 200, and 400, you actually run faster earlier in the race and start to slow down toward the end. So as 800 meter runners have gotten better, even though they really have to be careful about going out too fast in the first lap because they can't negative split, they kind of have to risk going out too fast in the first lap because it's the only way to get faster. There's only so fast you can run the second lap of the 800 because you have to overcome fatigue that really just locks your muscles up. So every single improvement of the world record in the 800 since about the mid-1960s has been from running the first lap faster. So let's go back to Rudisha's race for a second. So much will be determined by this first turn and the early running on the backstretch. And right now, it looks like the young Kip Keeter is the one that wants to control this race. He's racing towards the front. If you watched it live, you might have noticed that the announcers were going crazy over Rudisha's countryman, Alfred Kipkeeter, running out really fast from the gun. They basically said he was going suicidal. And he did run out really fast. But you kind of have to if you want to win at the Olympic level. So Kipkeeter is running like Rudisha did in London, very fast over this first 400 meters. Rudisha's controlling the rest of the field, running the kind of races he's run since London. Ultimately, the first lap in this race was almost exactly as quick as the first lap Rudisha ran in London four years ago when he set the world record. It might have looked crazy, with Alfred Kipkeeter going out at a breakneck pace, eventually tying up and falling back to seventh, whereas American Clayton Murphy was scooting up all the while to come into the bronze medal spot, and David Rudisha just led from out front once Kipkeeter fell back. But that's actually pretty much par for the course for the 800. You have to try to go out a little crazy if you're going to run your fastest race. And the runners who hang back just a little bit more conservative have to hope that those front runners put just a little too much on the line and they'll come back to them. This time, that's exactly what happened for Alfred Kipkeeter, but not for David Rudisha, who managed to stay in front and win another gold medal. Rhodesia leads into the home straightaway. McLuffian boss second and third. And then Clayton Murphy. Here comes Rhodesia. Rhodesia will go to the finish line. David Rhodesia has defended his title. David Epstein is a writer for ProPublica and the author of the book, The Sports Gene, Inside the Science of Extraordinary Athletic Performance. And now the after torches. I'm going to call this one the O'Donovan Brothers. Maybe you've seen these charming Irishmen. 
regretting the fact that they have to be in Rio winning medals instead of in Ireland, where everyone is partying due to the fact that the O'Donovans are winning medals. Are you aware of what's been going on back home, back here? Because it's just been mayhem. The nation has gone, has gone rowing mad and O'Donovan mad. I heard that, uh, Gary got a Snapchat there earlier and they were roaring away mad or something. And But you know I haven't a clue what's going on, to be honest, at home. I'd say it was mad excitement altogether. It's a pity we're missing the whole thing out here. So there are problems in Rio. You know about the green pool. You know the table tennis balls aren't bouncing, right? Oh, you've not heard of that? The old balls used to be made of celluloid, which was great, except they explode and are flammable when transported by air. So you have to deliver them by hazmat trucks. So now they have these new non-celluloid balls. They've also shrunk by 0.1 millimeters. Anyway, the players all hate them. They say they don't bounce right. The New York Times even quoted the head of the Table Tennis Federation owning up to, yeah, the balls kind of suck. But I don't want to even talk about that. I want to talk about the serious stuff, sort of what NBC ain't telling you. Well, they couldn't not tell you that Ryan Lochte and three of his swimming teammates got mugged and robbed at gunpoint. Lochte even saying that robbers who posed as a policeman held a gun to his head. But there are a lot of terrible things going on in Rio. Here's a partial rundown. The Olympic Broadcasting Service reported that seven people suffered injuries when one of their big overhead rope-mounted cameras fell onto them from 30 feet in the air in the Olympic Park. Portugal's education minister was robbed at knife point at Copacabana Beach. A Belgian judoka, someone who plays judo, you don't play judo, you fight judo. So this is a judoka was left with a black eye, was robbed of his cell phone. He was celebrating his bronze medal in the Diodoro zone, which is a half an hour away from most of the other activities, which a Guardian reporter said, if it was a horse, you'd shoot it and put it out of its misery. Bullets keep piercing the roof and landing there. It's near some army training sites. And the official word is these bullets were not meant to be shot at, say, the media tent. They just happened to be falling inside. A bus transporting members of the media from the basketball arena was attacked. The official word is that it was a rock attack, but journalists, including a uh, former Air Force veteran, is sure that these buses were shot at. Two Australian rowing coaches were assaulted when they were walking to their hotel in uh, the Posh Ipanema Beach area. They were attacked by knife-brandishing teens who grabbed the coaches by their throat and pushed them against the wall. We're not getting into the thefts of cameras. We're not getting into the pickpocketing. Uh, Swedish tourists took a wrong turn and were apparently held hostage for a little while, then let go. Many, many tourists were robbed. Not even getting into that, getting into more of the major activities associated with officials with the games or people who are athletes or coaches. A canoe slalom coach from Germany died after sustaining head injuries in a car crash in Rio. A policeman named Helio Vieira was shot and killed when his police convoy took a wrong turn into a, a notoriously crime-ridden favela. Many police have reportedly been shot or shot at, but this is the one confirmed death. In Rio, the New York Times reports that over 1,500 people have been murdered so far this year. The AP goes further. It says that in the first five months of 2016, homicides increased by 18% to 1,870. 
This is a pace for about 4,000 murders in a city of just over 6 million. So my point is, and why I list this is two reasons, that no matter what really happens, what you're going to see on NBC and the NBC family of networks is an extremely sanitized version of the reality. And the other part of it is that these Olympics are unsafe, maybe arguably more safe than life in Rio for the average citizen. But that is not safe enough for international travel. That is not safe enough for international competition. When Rio was given the games in 2009, safety was a concern, but things were trending up. Now things have trended down. Official spokesmen will deny problems. They officially said that Ryan Lochte at first wasn't mugged. Then they said he was. I haven't even mentioned the many, many instances, dozens of instances of bags being exploded. I mean, I did mention that Carly Lloyd's mother had it happen to her, but so many other people have bags left alone, unattended, exploded officially because they're suspicious packages. I don't know if that means that things are unsafe or that the police is doing their job, but this has not been what you would call a safe Olympics. It has not been media hysteria. It is another sign that Rio may be trying as best they can and that the intentions of the organizers or the people of Rio are fine and great, and they're trying. But for an international competition of this stature, you would hope that organizations like the IOC would choose safer environments for everyone who's going there. Well, that's it for today's show. After uh, I read the credits, I'll give you the answer to the most common name of American Olympic athletes. And I'll also say that we would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and listen in iTunes or go to itunes.com slash slate podcast. Do leave us a comment. Do leave us a rating. You can become a fan of us on Facebook, facebook.com slash hangup and listen. The interns, Laura Wagner, the producers of the Olympic Extra are Fim Shapiro and Dan Bloom. Executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bauer is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Remember Ralph Metcalf. Also remember all the Katie's. I will now read all the Katie's or Catherine's, who may be called Katie, on the U.S. Olympic team. Kate Bertko, Kate Grace, Kate Snyder, Caitlin Falgowski, Catherine Holmes, Kathleen Sharkey, Kathleen Baker, Catherine Johnson, Katie Bam. Oh, I love Katie Bam. Katie Reinprecht, Katie Ledecky, Katie Melly, Katie Zafiris Hersey, and Katrina Young. Katrina Young's not a Katie. Thanks for listening. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. 
Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.